Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah. Next week we're going to jump into a full book study of Nehemiah, but for today I want for us to start by pulling out a few points, uh, some key points from what we find here in chapters 1 and 2, and then I've got a recommendation that I'm going to share with you from the strategic planning committee of our church. There's some things about how Nehemiah approached the challenge that was in front of him, and I believe these are important things for us to understand today. You know the story. Uh, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He's exiled away from his homeland. He has a visit from his brother and some other men, and they tell him, they remind Nehemiah that the walls of Jerusalem are lying down in ruins. Not only is this dangerous for the city and its inhabitants, it is dishonoring to God. Nehemiah is absolutely wrecked over this news with a God-fueled brokenness. He is wrecked with a God-fueled brokenness. See, God had a plan for Nehemiah, but that plan could not come about until Nehemiah is completely broken over what broke the heart of God. And what I want to focus on here for just a few moments is how Nehemiah practically approached this challenge that is in front of him. There's five things we see him do, and I want to encourage you, on the back of your bulletin, you have a ton of space for taking notes. Now would be a great time to pull that bulletin out and and take notes as we move forward. But here's five practical things that Nehemiah did. Number one, Nehemiah included God. Nehemiah included God. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4 says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He says, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Continue on Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is standing in front of the king, and, and the king is asking him, what's wrong, Nehemiah? The king then asks him a question, and before Nehemiah answers the question, he goes to God in prayer. He includes God in the conversation that's taking place between him and the king. You continue on and you see Nehemiah get some, get some opposition from Sanballat, right? And the first thing that he does is he goes to God in prayer. He says, God, would you please help me with this? He prays a prayer about the situation that he is in. Folks, any initiative or any project that does not include God is just a man-made and a man-funded excursion. That's all it is. But where God is the initiator and when he, where he continues to be included, watch out. Because he cannot be stopped. So first of all, Nehemiah included God. Secondly, we see Nehemiah gather information. He gathered information. Now, to rebuild the walls of, of, of Jerusalem was already on the heart of Nehemiah. So when the king asked him, what is it you need? Because that's what the king said. What is it you need? What are you requesting from me? He's ready with an answer because he had done his homework in gathering information. So we look at chapter 2 and verse 7. Look at that with me. If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. See, Nehemiah had done his homework. He knew what it was going to take to rebuild those walls, and he had his materials list ready. You ever built something before? Beforehand, before you go to Lowe's or Home Depot, you write out what you need, right? It's 
It's almost like Nehemiah had that ready in his mind. He had gathered the information. He had that materials list ready. What is it going to take to do something? And I can imagine him including God in this conversation beforehand. God, God, would you give me wisdom to know what it's going to take to get this thing done? So first of all, we saw that Nehemiah included God. Secondly, he gathered information. Then the third thing we see Nehemiah do is that he experienced firsthand. He experienced firsthand. In the middle of chapter 2, Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, and at night he goes out and he inspects the walls. He experiences firsthand what's going on. Now, Nehemiah had never seen Jerusalem before. He had never set foot on that property. He had heard other people talk about it. There's a strong chance that he knew the geography. He knew where the different gates were were, were placed before. He, He knew those things about Jerusalem, but he had never seen it firsthand. So what does he do? He goes out at night and he inspects. He he takes a look. You see, he needed an honest firsthand look at what's going on. Because up to this point, he had only gathered information about the city. Oh, but now he's seeing firsthand. Now, as a part of experiencing that firsthand, we see that he also involved a few good people. He involved a few good people. Now, it wasn't just Nehemiah that went out on those night rides around the city. He took a few men with him. And and honestly, it wasn't just one night that he went out. We understand really from, from from the passage here that it's multiple nights that Nehemiah goes out and he inspects the walls. He rides around and he he sees. And 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 we know that he takes people with him. Now, chapter 2, verse 12, is clear that he told no one what God had put on his heart, but I can imagine Nehemiah in the daytime, after those rides had taken place the night before, he's probably going to these different men, and he's, he's saying stuff like, hey, um, hey, what's your thoughts on what we saw last night? Or, or, or what are your thoughts on, on the condition of the walls of, of Jerusalem? Or, or what do you think ought to be done about the walls in Jerusalem? And by involving a few good people, Get this, by involving a few good people, what was before a God-given burden now becomes the beginning stages of a movement. See, before, God had laid it on Nehemiah's heart saying, Nehemiah, something needs to be done. It's a God-given burden, but now when he's gathered a few people together, oh, it's, it's the beginning stages of a movement. And it is at this point then that Nehemiah engaged the whole city. Number five, he engaged the whole city. Chapter 2, verse 17, we'll start reading there. Here's what Nehemiah says to the city as a whole. So everybody's gathered around, everybody's listening. He says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now, let me be clear here, okay? I am in no way, shape, or form Nehemiah. In fact, I I long to have the kind of passion um, and ability, leadership ability that Nehemiah had. We are not the Israelites that are gathered there in Jerusalem, okay? We've got to be careful not to write ourselves into a story such as this, okay? That's dangerous when you do that. However, when you look at this story and you see what God did there, I can see some similarities in what God has been doing here at Salem Baptist Church. I can see some similarities there, and here, here they are. As we get ready to move into this next period as our church, and hear the recommendation here in a few moments, Folks, I truly believe that God has been included in this entire process. 
over and over and over again. We have groups of people who are falling on their face before God saying, God, would you give us clarity? Would you give us vision? Would you show us what is right for us, how we move forward well? Number two, I see that we're now approaching several years of gathering information and thinking and praying for God to provide clarity for that future of Salem Baptist Church. That time of gathering information has been, there's still more to come. Uh, There's been the opportunity to experience firsthand the state of the church, to take an honest, firsthand look at what's going on. Over the past year, we've had good people coming together to work and to get an inside look at our church. Where are we at with where we need to be? And now, number five, it is time to engage the church as a whole. Now, this has been a process that has been absolutely bathed in prayer. And because we believe that prayer connects our minds and our hearts with the mind and the heart of God, we want to continue bathing this in prayer. And I think right now is a great time for us to just bow our heads and go to him and ask that he bless our time together. So let's pray together. Our Father, I come to you, and and Father, I am... Um, humbled at the ways we have seen you working. Father, 111 years we celebrated last year of, of you working in this church, of you sustaining this church. Father, of you saving people through this church, of people being sent out from this church to go and plant churches, Father, to go and, and, and overseas and to share the gospel with people, to plant churches there. Father, 111 years of the people of this church being mobilized for your glory so that others can come to a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. And Father, that's our heart. That's what we want to see. We want to see that continue. Father, would you be glorified by everything that takes place in this room today? Father, would you give me words that need to be spoken? Would you give us as a church wisdom as we prepare to move forward? And in all of it, Father, we give you the honor and glory that you alone are due. We love you, Father, but we only love you because you first loved us. And Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. And it's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Well, if you're a guest here with us today, I want to tell you that you are welcome. And um, and I'm excited that you're here. You're going to hear a lot in the next little while, um, just as we process through a lot that's taking place here with our church. And and I'd invite you to, to the conversation, invite you to listen in and listen to what we believe, um, is taking place currently with our church. A little over a year ago, the nominating committee and this church put together a strategic planning committee, which I'm going to refer to sometimes as a SPC, okay? So strategic planning committee, SPC. Now here's some of the excerpts from that initial proposal that was made for the formulation of the SPC, okay? First of all, the purpose. The SPC will be responsible for dialogue regarding the future of Salem Baptist Church. The SPC will operate based on the church's mission and philosophy of ministry to plan for the long-term sustainability and growth of the ministry. The SPC will then make recommendations to the church based on their findings to institute a long-term plan. And here's the rationale. The Bible is clear that the elders, pastors of the church are the leadership of the church and that the deacons are given the responsibility of coming alongside the elders for the purpose of serving the people of the church as needed. The church, this local body of believers, is the body of Christ and as such has a responsibility to govern itself according to the teaching of the Word of God and the leading of the Spirit of God. 
This orthodoxy, which is correct doctrine, should lead to an orthopraxy, correct action, that emphasizes the responsibility of this local body of believers to plan for long-term sustainable growth that is characteristic of churches who have a heart for those far from God and that seeks to glorify God in all that it does. Salem Baptist Church has a long history of impact in the community of Winston-Salem, and this is something we long to see continued in future generations. However, failure to plan now will result in reduced effectiveness in the future. With this in mind, it is important for the church to designate a group of people who can assist with the dialogue needed to plan for future development of the church's philosophy of ministry, facilities, and long-term objectives. And then here are the parameters of the SBC. Dialogue will take place under the umbrella of the Word of God, the leading of the Spirit of God, and through the leadership of the senior pastor of the church. The SPC will not be governed by the senior pastor, but will be given teaching, direction, and overarching vision by the senior pastor. The SPC will not make defining decisions for the church as a whole. Instead, they will make recommendations to the church regarding future action needed. The SPC will raise up from within itself a chairperson and secretary. Our chairperson was VW Peters, has been VW Peters, and our secretary has been Wesley Scruggs. And here's the makeup of it. And I'm not going to read through this whole list, but you can see on the screen there kind of the makeup of the committee itself. This is one that the church approved back in uh, December of 2018. Here's the names of the people who have served on this committee. And once again, I'm not going to read through all of those, na- all of those names. But folks, these people have worked hard over the past year. They've worked very hard. They've given of themselves and their time, their, their resources to be able to make sure that we can do this thing well. And would you join me in, in thanking those people who have served? Over the past year, this, work, this, this group has worked hard to define reality, to define reality. What is there is there, okay? That's, that's reality. But oftentimes it takes work to understand and to comprehend what is actually there. Defining reality is not an easy thing to do because it forces a person to look past their perception of what is to the truth of what is. You've seen illusions before. Optical illusions, right? Where, where uh, your mind is perceiving that one thing is happening when in all actuality there's something else that sh- you should be comprehending. Defining reality is similar to one of those illusions, right? We've got we to look past perception to the truth. So in an effort to define reality, we work through a SWOT analysis for our church. So what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are our opportunities? What are our threats? And I want to I outline those for you briefly here. We're not going to spend any time talking through these. We have another time uh, to do so, but, but here's what we found to be our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, stre- threats. Our strengths, biblical teaching and preaching, our foreign missions program, our kids and youth and college programs, and our prayer culture within our church. So those are the top four strengths. Now, we had a list of a bunch of these, but we had to narrow it down some. Then there's the weaknesses, effective local outreach, the behavior trends inward. I'll talk more about that in a couple of moments the age and condition of our facilities, the discipleship of believers are all weaknesses, then opportunities, city involvement. What is God doing around our city? Where is God working? Where can we be involved in that? The use of technology, Salem Baptist Christian School and Marywood Christian Camp are absolutely opportunities, and we, have, we continue to see disciples being made through those ministries. The assets, folks, we don't have any debt whatsoever. We own everything that, um, that we've got, all of our property. And then the volunteer potential. 
and then under, thre- under threats. There's a lack of diversity, both age and ethnicity. There's cost of maintenance and financial collapse. There's a lack of gospel impact, community stigmas, and resistance to change. Those are all threats. Now, taking a step back as we have um, allows us to take a good, strong look at the areas in which we need to improve. How many of you think that there's such thing as a perfect church? Raise your hand. I don't see any hands raised right now. I'm not surprised by that because there are no perfect churches at all. Every church should be taking honest looks at themselves to better understand how they can be more impactful in serving the Lord. Because that's, that's what we're doing. That's what we're about. We're here to serve the Lord, to, to follow Him. So we're taking an honest look at how we can best serve the Lord. Now, in the late summer, early fall of this past year, we had, we'd spent an enormous amount of time on this SWOT analysis when the information came in for our facilities assessment. And you've heard much of this already, but um, really it kind of outlined for us some difficulties that we've got here on our campus. And when that report came back from our consulting agency, it did so with some really big numbers when it comes to our deferred maintenance. When I share with you in December, uh, that number was listed at right at $2.5 million. That number has changed, and I'm going to show you that here in just a couple of moments. But also in December, I shared with you some other problems that we are facing as a church. And I'm going I'm to refresh our memory on these. So if this sounds familiar, it's probably because it is familiar, all right? But number one, one of the problems we face is attendance. Up on the screen, you see a graph, and it may be a little difficult for you to read, but over on the left is the number of people attending our church. At the bottom is the years. And, um, and it starts back in the 60s, okay? And then it goes by decades all the way up until 2000, where at that point it starts in uh, increments of five years. Folks, that's a thousand people less in our church right now than 50 years ago. And with that change in attendance comes changes to our giving structure. Now, according to national averages, Salem is an incredibly giving church. You give over and above um, to help sustain this church. To my knowledge, there has never been a time in which our missionaries have failed to receive their support check or our staff has ever uh, gone without payroll. I don't know of any time that that's ever happened. Uh, We don't ever miss paying the utility bills. However, common sense says that the giving dynamics of our church are going to continue to change, in part because the makeup of our congregation is going to continue to change in years to come. Some of our members who have traditionally given the most are um, on an age now. They're getting older. They're not going to be here forever to continue giving. As I think about attendance, I can't help but think about where our church members also live, Because in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, most of our church members lived right here around our church, and they walked to church on Sunday morning. And that's just not the case anymore. In fact, most of of the people who come here on Sunday morning drive over seven miles to get here to come to church. So this is no longer such a community church as it is a regional church. Nothing wrong with that. It's just one of the realities. Another problem that we see is inward-trending behavior. And I gave you some characteristics from Tom Rainer's um, book um, and in this moment. I can't remember the name of the book, but Tom Rainer li- gave this list of characteristics of an inward-focused church. Uh, you, you see a slow erosion of numbers over time, an unhealthy focus on the past. You see refusal slash failure to look like the community, budget shift from ministry to maintenance slash inward-focused programs, great commission is ignored, preferences dominate decisions. There's a failure to pray together. There's no clear purpose for the church. There's an obsession over facilities. Now, while some of the factors that I just listed for you are more prevalent than others, it can easily be argued that there's been this gradual behavioral shift 
inward in the past several decades at Salem Baptist Church. It wasn't but a, but a year ago that I read the, uh, the biography of Charles Stevens, who was the pastor here back in the late 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, when Salem experienced an enormous amount of growth with baptisms and salvations like you wouldn't believe. Father, some of you were, were here uh, on the tail end of his ministry. You would have remembered much of what took place at that time. But then as I continue to read through past meeting minutes, where he talked heavily about outreach and reaching people, go get people, share with them the gospel. There was this, this inward shift that started taking place just in the language that was used in our meetings. Started talking a whole lot about how to preserve the institution of Salem rather than reaching people. There's a shift that took place somewhere. Yeah, it's time to reverse that shift, to go back. The reality is that Salem has been in a place in which the preservation of the institution has been more important than the making of new disciples. And, and I want to add to this, just like I did in December, I am incredibly encouraged by the pockets of repentance that I see taking place for that inside Salem. More and more I see people who long for first-generation type faith. I believe that God has primed our church for this moment so we can step out in first-generation type faith and see Him accomplish the impossible. Here's another problem I shared with you, and that was the footprint of our property. Uh, our, our parking and its limitations are a problem. A few months ago, when we were here in our worship service, we had someone walk around outside and they counted cars. And, and if we didn't have Piedmont's parking lot across the street, which we don't, we don't foresee that happening anytime soon, but we, if we didn't have that, then we would have only had 15 open spots on our entire property for people to park in. Okay, That's including parking on both sides of Bank Street and Spring Street. That's a problem because um, how do you anticipate growth if you don't have places for people to park, right? We've got a Christian school that's thriving with disciples being made and churned out from that place. However, they're virtually capped right now because they can't grow anymore because of a lack of space. Now, I've talked to some of you and you've said, well, how can that be if back years ago, decades ago, that was a school of a thousand students? Well, in, in response to that, I would simply say that we live in a different time. In the 1960s, you could throw up a trailer in a parking lot, and uh, you could, you could, that would work for putting students in. In fact, I'm told that there was about 10 of those temporary trailers or small buildings that were set up around where students were housed. There was 40-plus students packed into classrooms, and you just simply can't do that anymore. Number one, the government won't let us. Number two, there's safety aspects there. Number three, what parent is going to put their child in a school where they're just maintaining the status quo when it comes to their facilities? Just to be completely honest, what parent is going to do that? We have seven acres here and just under 150,000 square foot of interior space, but that space is not utilized well just because of the way the buildings are built and laid out. The only handicap accessible place that we've got on this campus is those front doors where you come inside the foyer. That's it. You say, well, there's a couple other ramps in different places. Yeah, there are, but they are grossly out of code, grossly out of code. Folks, the reality is if a person of limited mobility shows up here on our campus and they try to get in to a place, we're telling them we don't want them here just because they can't do it. It's exactly what's taking place. And, there's, and then there's the issue of, of maintenance. And I'm not going to go into all the numbers and, and the points today that I did before regarding maintenance because there was a lot said then. But suffice it to say that our buildings are in dismal shape. In December, I shared with you that we had a deferred maintenance cost right now of about $2.5 million. 
Since then, uh, we had landmark builders come in, and, and they're arguably one of the best contractor companies anywhere in the state. And they viewed our property, and knowing better the building code and knowing the cost, they've told us that we're closer to $3.5 million to do the work that's necessary to repair our existing property. But here's the deal. That's just repairing old buildings. Okay, that's not building anything new. That's not answering the problems of parking. That's not answering the problem of a school that's greatly limited in what it can do because of the age and because of the, the, uh, the size and the footprint. That's not getting the school some of the things that they desperately need and that will be hugely beneficial for them, like ball fields. That number includes doing the bare minimum to take care of the handicap accessibility in all of our buildings. The bare minimum. Folks, this is the option that we take if we want to continue to maintain the status quo. As a strategic planning committee, we don't want to only maintain the status quo. We really don't. To be honest, I think we're tired of the status quo. I think our church is tired of the status quo as well. There's very little faith required for the status quo. Being okay with status quo just for sake of comfort is a strong example of second generation type faith. We serve a God who is infinite in power, and he is infinite equally in his love for mankind. And when you take and couple those two things together, you see a God that is willing to go to whatever means necessary to redeem people. He even sent his own son, Jesus, to this earth for the purpose of redeeming people. There is no greater sacrifice than that. As children of God, having seen the redemption that he freely gives us, there's nothing that's required for us except for surrender to him, repentance of our sins. We don't, have to, we don't have to serve in the church to, to bring to him, God, is this enough for you? That's what we talked about in our songs already today. No, he freely gives us this. So as children of God, having seen the redemption that he freely gives us, we should be willing to break through the status quo, knowing that we don't serve a status quo God. Okay, so then we think about our facilities, okay? What does this breaking through the status quo mean for us as a church when it comes to our facilities? As a strategic planning committee, we believe that it means one of two options, okay? One of two options. Option one, a complete renovation of our current property. A complete renovation of our current property. This means we do what is necessary to rework our property to fit our needs. This goes beyond just repairing the deferred maintenance, um, this, this would include, and this is, this is a very short list, this is including um, gutting our current buildings, many of our current buildings, and remodeling them. Uh, it would include putting in new parking lots. It would include tearing down mission houses and building new duplexes for the missionaries who are on furlough. By the way, let me stop there. Some of our mission houses are in dismal shape. Absolutely dismal shape. Some of you helped recently with, with one house that, honestly, we've gotten to the point we don't put anybody in that house anymore. We need to tear the thing down. We need about $20,000 to tear the thing down. How great would it be if we could put the missionaries who serve so faithfully on the field in homes that fit their needs very well, that are modern, where they don't have to worry about if the heat's going to work or not, or if the refrigerator's going to go out or not, or if the washing machine is going to stink to high heaven. How great would it be if we could do that? That's one of the things we're talking about here. It includes the reworking of our, this, this option includes reworking the layout of our property to better utilize that property. Now, that's option one, okay? And I'm going to be honest with you, it includes some major dollar signs 
And there are still tons of questions that still need to be answered about that option. At this point, we're not ready to give you a price point yet, but I'm going to get to an explanation of that here in just a couple of minutes, okay? It's going to help clear up maybe some questions that you've got. Here's the second option that we've got. That is to sell our property and strategically move elsewhere. Not long after this report came from Cool Solutions, we approached a local real estate broker and we asked him, would you please help us understand better our, our property and its value? So they completed an opinion of value study and determined that our property is valued as is, so as it is right now, at about $6.2 million. They estimated we could probably sell the property for about $6.5 million. That's a, that's a strike point that they anticipated. Now, let me be clear, okay? There have been no steps whatsoever taken to put this property on the market. There's been no steps whatsoever to start with, with option number one, the complete renovation, Okay, we've got ideas where we've been thinking, we're trying to think outside the box here. However, I fully believe that God introduces conversations in his timing. And since we began this process several months ago, I've been approached by three different organizations asking if we could have a conversation about selling them our property. Now, no matter what we do, either option one or option two, that is a decision that's going to be made by the congregation of this church. In fact, no matter what we do, Listen, it's got to be done at the decision of this church as a whole. My goal and the goal of the leadership is to work together to follow the Lord's leading and provide all the information that we can to you so that you can make an informed decision. All right. Now, with that said, I want to read to you the official recommendation from the Strategic Planning Committee, and you can read along on the screens. Here's what it says. With a desire to make sure Salem Baptist Church thrives until the Lord should return, And having worked through all data made available to us, and given the fact that our current property and facilities are lacking in fulfilling the needs of both SBC and SBCS, and having spent months in prayer and seeking godly counsel, the Strategic Planning Committee recommends to Salem Baptist Church that we move forward with the pursuit of either selling our property and relocating or engaging in a major renovation of our current property. As a collective body, we have determined the above to be our only two options— As such, the Strategic Planning Committee recommends that we move forward in gathering more information to assist in determining the right decision for our church. Now, I want you to notice something there. They don't tell you, they don't tell you the church, here's the recommendation we should do option one or option two. What they say and what they're asking for there is um, they recommend that we move forward in gathering more information to assist in determining the right decision for our church. Okay, so, so where do we go from here? Now, up to this point, we've been able to do a ton of work at virtually no cost to the church. Somebody say amen. Amen. There are people outside of our church who have donated hours of research and consulting services to help us be as informed as possible. That's a great blessing that that oftentimes churches don't get, organizations don't get that. We've been able to receive that, and it's it's a great blessing to us. However, we are at the point in which we need to spend some money in order to bring to the church information So you, as a church, can make an informed decision about our future. So at this point, here's what we, as as the pastors, the trustees, the deacons, the, the strategic planning committee, here's what we're asking of the church, okay? We need money for two things. We need to pay an architect and land planner to help us understand exactly what we're looking at with these two options, all right? That's option, or that's, that's the first thing. Secondly, we need to pay a finance consultant who can do a complete audit of all of our finances and help us planning in planning financially for the future. 
We don't see any way around those two things. That's the next thing that we need to do, those two things. That money would go towards plans being drawn up with realistic numbers of the cost for moving forward. It would go towards us getting a better handle on the financial potential of moving forward. Folks, one of the unique things about our church is that we are congregationally governed. Anytime we have operational cost outside the budget, the church approves us spending that money to do so. So here's what we're asking. We're coming to you and asking for $19,000 to do this initial work. Now, that's going to help us make informed decisions about moving forward. On Wednesday, February the 26th, it's a Wednesday evening, February the 26th, we're going to have a member meeting in this room where we vote on actually spending that money to do that, okay? Where does that money come from, you say? To be honest, um, we've got money from a former capital campaign that we did where we could pull from that. But I want to be equally as honest and say, church, it would be great if we could hold on to that. Because I've just shared with you and shared with you back in December, we have a whole lot of things that could break at any time. HVAC units, we have a roof that during the homecoming game for basketball was leaking so badly that between plays they had to run out with towels to, to dry the floor so the basketball players didn't fall down on the floor. All right, we've got problems such as that. And I'd love to use that $19,000 to go towards some of those repairs that need to be made. So the ask that we have is, would you as a church step up and would you give towards this? And here's how you can do it. Um, you don't need to come to me to say, hey, I'd like to give such and such amount of money. You need to go to Cliff Ashburn and tell him that you would like to give such and such amount of money. Or you can email future at salembaptistnow.org. And everybody want to, wants to write that down right now, okay? If you use email at all, write this email address down, future at salembaptistnow.org. Anytime you have questions, anytime you have comments, anytime you have anything that you would like to say about this whole process as we move forward, you email that email account. You say, well, I don't use email. We got you taken care of, all right? Out on the, in the foyer, there's some comment cards. You can fill that thing out and drop it in the offering box anytime, and we will make sure it's added to a pool of questions that we will answer. Now, we're going to put together a list of, of questions, and we're going to make sure we get it to you. We're going to make sure we answer every question that you've got. I promise. We want to go together in this. I got a couple of summary thoughts here, and I want you to, in, these, in, sum, in, in summing all this up, I want you to take your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. What I hope to do in the next five minutes is communicate the heart with which we should be moving forward as a church. Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I want to, I want to close out by asking three questions, okay? This is three questions that we can each individually ask ourselves. This is three questions we can ask as a church. Number one, what do you believe about God? Number one is what do you believe about God? Do you truly believe that he is omnipotent, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipresent? And if those things are true, 
Do you believe that he has a plan that is greater than anything else that we could dream up on our own? What do you believe about God? Is God small to you? Or is God a big God? Is is God a tool to be used? Or is God the creator to be worshipped? Is God useful to you? Or is God precious to you? What do you believe about God? Your answer to that is going to affect every other area of your life and the life of our church because what we believe about God will drive everything else. Question number two, what do you believe about God's power in you? What do you believe about God's power in you? What is it that you believe that God has done for you and in you? If you're a believer, then never ever forget the love that he's got for you and the gift of salvation that he has given to you. Charles Spurgeon was once talking about the believer remembering the love of God, and he said this. He said, look upward, and you will perceive no seat of fiery wrath to shoot arrows of devouring flame. In other words, look upward, and you're not going to see a God who has vengeful wrath coming against you. He says, look downward, and you discover no hell, for there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Look Look back. Look at that sin that is blotted out. Look around. And all things work together for good to them that love God. Look beyond. Look beyond. And glory shines through the veil of the future like the sun through a morning's mist. Folks, if God loves us enough to redeem us and his power is promised to us, then there is no God-ordained task that is too great for us. So the first question was, what do you believe about God? Second question is, what do you believe about God's power in you? Do you know without a doubt that you are loved by God, that you are forgiven by God, that he has done everything necessary to redeem you, to sanctify you, to save you, and that his power is at work within you, and that there's nothing that can be accomplished when when God is on your side? Everything can be accomplished when God is on your side. I got that backwards. What do you believe about God's power in you? But then here's the third question, and it is this. Whose glory are we seeking? Whose glory are we seeking? And these are all questions that come from these two verses. Verse 21 there is clear that the only one that is worthy of getting the glory is God. It's not me. It's not you. It's not even our church as a whole. Now, Salem, listen, we're not trying to create another existing church or or, or, or mimic or copy another existing church. We're not trying to be the church down the street or the church in another city. God has uniquely gifted Salem Baptist Church, and our role is to be faithful with what he's given and to glorify him alone. Throughout the New Testament, the church is described as the the bride of Christ. It wasn't until about 50 to 75 years ago that the concept of a bridal party that stood on a stage with the bride and groom came about. Did you know that? Up until about 50, 75 years ago, the only one standing on the stage in front of people was the bride, the groom, and the pastor that was marrying them, whoever was marrying them. But the bridal party was just as important before that as they were after that, especially the bridesmaids. And and here's why. For months leading up to the wedding itself, the bridesmaids would work with the bride. They would give her beauty treatments. I don't even know what that means, but they would give her beauty treatments. They would help her uh, design and and make her clothes. 
They would do everything they could to make sure that when she went down that aisle and she was presented to that groom and she got married, that she was in the best condition possible. They were intimately involved in everything that was going on before the wedding. But when that wedding came, you wouldn't see bridesmaids standing up on the platform with the bride. You would see bridesmaids if you looked at the back of the church and they'd be hidden in obscurity at the back of the church. But you know, they would be looking on that bride with pride, saying, we did everything we could to make sure she was ready for her groom. Church, I want for us to be the bridesmaids of the past. One day, the church is going to be presented to Jesus, the bridegroom. One day, the church is going to be presented to him. And I would love for Salem Baptist Church leadership, all of us together, to be kind of standing in the background and we're in obscurity. We weren't out there where everybody could shine a spotlight on us. But we're saying we did everything we could to make sure that we did our part, to make sure that there was holiness, to make sure that God was glorified. That's who I want us to be. We're not out to make a name for ourselves. Only name we want to proclaim is the name of Jesus. We're not out for converts. I could care less about filling pews. What I care more about is making disciples. Church, listen. What an opportunity we have to move forward well. And there's a whole lot of things we got to talk about over the next several months. And it's not just facilities. We have a lot that we need to talk through. That's all right. Let's do it. But not for our glory. Let's do it for the glory of the one who has redeemed us. Knowing that one day we're going to have the opportunity to spend eternity with him. Church, would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you. And God, we need wisdom moving forward. We believe we've got some clarity. Father, we believe that, that we've got some direction. Father, may we not get so distracted by these things that we completely forget the main thing. We've been commanded, Father, we... By Jesus himself, before he ascended to heaven, his last command, his parting command, his last thing that he told us was, go, therefore, and make disciples. Father, that's what we want to do. We want to lift high the name of Jesus. Not lift high our name, but lift him high. But Father, I believe we are completely right in, in thinking this, that, that Father, you have blessed this church, you have sustained this church for 111 years. You've given men and women wisdom to do so. Father, we want to see this church thrive for another 111 years. So, Father, would you show us what it's going to take for us to do that well? Father, we thank you for the life that you give us. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, don't forget, email future at salembaptistnow.org. If you have any questions or thoughts or comments or concerns, um, there's also comment cards out there in the foyer. I love you. I th I'm thankful for you, and I'm praying for you.